This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Mysteries of Adolfo by Anne Radcliffe. Volume 1, Chapter 13, Part 2. Montoni, meanwhile, every day more impatient to leave France, gave repeated orders for dispatch to the servants employed in preparations for the journey, and to the persons with whom he was transacting some particular business. He preserved a steady silence to the letters in which Valancourt, despairing of greater good, and having subdued the passion, that had transgressed against his policy, solicited only the indulgence of being allowed to bid Emily farewell. But when the latter, Valancourt, learned, that she was really to set out in a very few days, and that it was designed he should see her no more, forgetting every consideration of prudence, he dared, in a second letter to Emily, to propose a clandestine marriage. This also was transmitted to Madame Montoni, and the last day of Emily's stay at Thoulouse arrived, without affording Valancourt even a line to soothe his sufferings, or a hope that he should be allowed a parting interview. During this period of torturing suspense to Valancourt, Emily was sunk into that kind of stupor with which sudden and irremediable misfortune sometimes overwhelms the mind. Loving him with the tenderest affection, and having long been accustomed to consider him as the friend and companion of all her future days, she had no ideas of happiness that were not connected with him. What, then, must have been her suffering, when thus suddenly they were to be separated, perhaps for ever, certainly to be thrown into distant parts of the world, where they could scarcely hear of each other's existence, and all this in obedience to the will of a stranger, for such as Montoni, and of a person who had but lately been anxious to hasten their nuptials. It was in vain that she endeavoured to subdue her grief, and resign herself to an event which she could not avoid. The silence of Valancourt afflicted more than it surprised her, since she attributed it to its just occasion. But when the day preceding that on which she was to quit Thoulouse arrived, and she had heard no mention of his being permitted to take leave of her, grief overcame every consideration that had made her reluctant to speak of him, and she inquired of Madame Montoni whether this consolation had been refused. Her aunt informed her that it had, adding that, after the provocation she had herself received from Valancourt, in their last interview, and the persecution which the seigneur had suffered from his letters, no entreaties should avail to procure it. "'If the chevalier expected this favour from us,' said she, "'he should have conducted himself in a very different manner. He should have waited patiently, till he knew whether we were disposed to grant it, and not have come and reproved me,' because I did not think proper to bestow my niece upon him, and then have persisted in troubling the seigneur, because he did not think proper to enter into any dispute about so childish an affair. His behavior throughout has been extremely presumptuous and impertinent, and I desire that I may never hear his name repeated, and that you will get the better of these foolish sorrows and whims, and look like other people, and not appear with that dismal countenance, as if you were ready to cry." for, though you say nothing, you cannot conceal your grief from my penetration. I can see you are ready to cry at this moment, though I am reproving you for it, I, even now, in spite of my commands. Emily, having turned away to hide her tears, quitted the room to indulge them, 
and the day was passed in an intensity of anguish such as she had, perhaps, never known before. When she withdrew to her chamber for the night, she remained in the chair where she had placed herself, on entering the room, absorbed in her grief, till long after every member of the family except herself was retired to rest. She could not divest herself of a belief that she had parted with Valancourt to meet no more, a belief which did not arise merely from foreseen circumstances, for, though the length of the journey she was about to commence, the uncertainty as to the period of her return, together with the prohibitions she had received, seemed to justify it, she yielded also to an impression, which she mistook for a presentiment, that she was going from Valancourt for ever. How dreadful to her imagination, too, was the distance that would separate them! The Alps, those tremendous barriers, would rise, and whole countries extend between the regions where each must exist. To live in adjoining provinces, to live even in the same country, though without seeing him, was comparative happiness to the conviction of this dreadful length of distance. Her mind was, at length, so much agitated by this consideration of her state, and the belief that she had seen Valancourt for the last time, that she suddenly became very faint, and, looking round the chamber for something that might revive her, she observed the casements, and had just strength to throw one open, near which she seated herself. The air recalled her spirits, and the still moonlight that fell on the elms of the long avenue, fronting the window, somewhat soothed them, and determined her to try whether exercise and the open air would not relieve the intense pain that bound her temples. In the chateau all was still, and, passing down the great staircase into the hall, from whence a passage led immediately to the garden, she softly and unheard, as she thought, unlocked the door, and entered the avenue. Emily passed on with steps now hurried and now faltering, as, deceived by the shadows among the trees, she fancied she saw some person move in the distant perspective, and feared if it was a spy of Madame Montoni. Her desire, however, to revisit the pavilion, where she had passed so many happy hours with Valancourt, and had admired with him the extensive prospect over Languedoc and her native Gascony, overcame her apprehension of being observed, and she moved on towards the terrace, which, running along the upper garden, commanded the whole of the lower one, and communicated with it by a flight of marble steps that terminated the avenue. Having reached these steps, she paused a moment to look round, for her distance from the chateau now increased the fear which the stillness and obscurity of the hour had awakened. But, perceiving nothing that could justify it, she ascended to the terrace, where the moonlight shewed a long broad walk, with the pavilion at its extremity, while the rays silvered the foliage of the high trees and shrubs that bordered it on the right, and the tufted summits of those that rose to a level with the balustrade on the left, from the garden below. Her distance from the chateau again alarming her, she paused to listen. The night was so calm that no sound could have escaped her, but she heard only the plaintive sweetness of the nightingale, with the light shiver of the leaves, and she pursued her way towards the pavilion, having reached which, its obscurity did not prevent the emotion that a fuller view of its well-known scene would have excited. The lattices were thrown back, and shewed beyond their embowered arch the moonlight landscape, shadowy and soft, its groves and plains extending gradually and indistinctly to the eye, its distant mountains catching a stronger gleam, 
and the nearer river reflecting the moon and trembling to her rays. Emily, as she approached the lattice, was sensible of the features of the scene only as they served to bring Valancourt more immediately to her fancy. Ah, said she, with a heavy sigh, as she threw herself into a chair by the window, how often have we sat together in this spot, often have looked upon that landscape? Never, never more shall we view it together. Never, never more, perhaps, shall we look upon each other. Her tears were suddenly stopped by terror. A voice spoke near her in the pavilion. She shrieked. It spoke again, and she distinguished the well-known tones of Valancourt. It was indeed Valancourt who supported her in his arms. For some moments their emotion would not suffer either to speak. Emily, said Valancourt at length, as he pressed her hand in his. Emily, and he was again silent, but the accent in which he had pronounced her name expressed all his tenderness and sorrow. Oh, my Emily, he resumed after a long pause, I do then see you once again, and hear again the sound of that voice. I have haunted this place, these gardens, for many, many nights, with a faint, very faint hope of seeing you. This was the only chance that remained to me, and thank heaven it has at length succeeded. I am not condemned to absolute despair. Emily said something, she scarcely knew what, expressive of her unalterable affection, and endeavored to calm the agitation of his mind. But Valancourt could for some time only utter incoherent expressions of his emotions, and, when he was somewhat more composed, he said, I come hither soon after sunset, and have been watching in the gardens, and in this pavilion ever since, for, though I had now given up all hope of seeing you, I could not resolve to tear myself from a place so near to you, and should probably have lingered about the chateau till morning dawned. Oh, how heavily the moments have passed, yet with what various emotion have they been marked, as I sometimes thought I heard footsteps, and fancied you were approaching, and then again, perceived only a dead and dreary silence. But when you opened the door of the pavilion, and the darkness prevented my distinguishing with certainty whether it was my love, my heart beat so strongly with hopes and fears that I could not speak. The instant I heard the plaintive accents of your voice, my doubts vanished, but not my fears, till you spoke of me. Then, losing the apprehension of alarming you in the excess of my emotion, I could no longer be silent. Oh, Emily, these are moments in which joy and grief struggle so powerfully for preeminence that the heart can scarcely support the contest. Emily's heart acknowledged the truth of this assertion, but the joy she felt on thus meeting Valancourt, at the very moment that she was lamenting that they must probably meet no more, soon melted into grief as reflection stole over her thoughts, and imagination prompted visions of the future. She struggled to recover the calm dignity of mind which was necessary to support her through this last interview, and which Valancourt found it utterly impossible to attain, for the transports of his joy changed abruptly into those of suffering, and he expressed in the most impassioned language his horror of this separation, and his despair of their ever meeting again. Emily wept silently as she listened to him, and then, trying to command her own distress and to soothe his, she suggested every circumstance that could lead to hope. But the energy of his fears led him instantly to detect the friendly fallacies, which she endeavored to impose on herself and him, 
and also to conjure up illusions too powerful for his reason. "'You are going from me,' said he, "'to a distant country. Oh, how distant! To new society, new friends, new admirers, with people, too, who will try to make you forget me, and to promote new connections. How can I know this, and not know that you will never return to me, never can be mine?' His voice was stifled by sighs. "'You believe, then,' said Emily, "'that the pangs I suffer proceed from a trivial and temporary interest. You believe—' "'Suffer,' interrupted Valancourt. "'Suffer for me. Oh, Emily, how sweet, how bitter are those words! What comfort, what anguish do they give! I ought not to doubt the steadiness of your affection, yet such is the inconsistency of real love, that it is always awake to suspicion, however unreasonable, always requiring new assurances from the object of its interest, and thus it is that I always feel revived, as by a new conviction, when your words tell me I am dear to you, and wanting these I relapse into doubt, and too often into despondency. Then, seeming to recollect himself, he exclaimed, But what a wretch am I thus to torture you, and in these moments too! I who ought to support and comfort you. This reflection overcame Valancourt with tenderness, but, relapsing into despondency, he again felt only for himself, and lamented again this cruel separation, in a voice and words so impassioned, that Emily could no longer struggle to repress her own grief or to soothe his. Valancourt, between these emotions of love and pity, lost the power, and almost the wish, of repressing his agitation and, in the intervals of convulsive sobs, he, at one moment, kissed away her tears, then told her cruelly that possibly she might never again weep for him, and then tried to speak more calmly, but only exclaimed, "'Oh, Emily, my heart will break! I cannot, cannot leave you! Now I gaze upon that countenance, now I hold you in my arms. A little while, and all this will appear a dream. I shall look, and cannot see you.' shall try to recollect your features, and the impression will be fled from my imagination. To hear the tones of your voice, and even memory will be silent. I cannot, cannot leave you. Why should we confide the happiness of our whole lives to the will of people who have no right to interrupt, and, except in giving you to me, have no power to promote it? Oh, Emily, venture to trust your own heart, venture to be mine forever. His voice trembled, and he was silent. Emily continued to weep, and was silent also, when Valancourt proceeded to propose an immediate marriage, and that at an early hour the following morning she should quit Madame Montoni's house, and be conducted by him to the church of the Augustines, where a friar should await to unite them. The silence with which she listened to a proposal, dictated by love and despair, and enforced at a moment when it seemed scarcely possible for her to oppose it, when her heart was softened by the sorrows of a separation that might be eternal, and her reason obscured by the illusions of love and terror, encouraged him to hope that it would not be rejected. "'Speak, my Emily,' said Valancourt eagerly. "'Let me hear your voice. Let me hear you confirm my fate.' She spoke not. Her cheek was cold, and her senses seemed to fail her. But she did not faint. To Valancourt's terrified imagination she appeared to be dying— he called upon her name, rose to go to the chateau for assistance, and then, recollecting her situation, feared to go, or to leave her for a moment. 
After a few minutes, she drew a deep sigh and began to revive. The conflict she had suffered, between love and the duty she at present owed to her father's sister, her repugnance to a clandestine marriage, her fear of emerging on the world with embarrassments, such as might ultimately involve the object of her affection in misery and repentance, all this various interest was too powerful for a mind, already enervated by sorrow, and her reason had suffered a transient suspension. But duty and good sense, however hard the conflict, at length triumphed over affection and mournful presentiment. Above all, she dreaded to involve Valancourt in obscurity and vain regret, which she saw, or thought she saw, must be the too certain consequence of a marriage in their present circumstances. And she acted, perhaps, with somewhat more than female fortitude, when she resolved to endure a present, rather than provoke a distant, misfortune. With a candor that proved how truly she esteemed and loved him, and which endeared her to him, if possible, more than ever, she told Valancourt all her reasons for rejecting his proposals. Those which influenced her concerning his future welfare, he instantly refuted, or rather contradicted, but they awakened tender considerations for her, which the frenzy of passion and despair had concealed before, and love, which had but lately prompted him to propose a clandestine and immediate marriage, now induced him to renounce it. The triumph was almost too much for his heart. For Emily's sake, he endeavored to stifle his grief, but the swelling anguish would not be restrained. "'Oh, Emily,' said he, "'I must leave you. I must leave you, and I know it is forever.' Convulsive sobs again interrupted his words, and they wept together in silence, till Emily, recollecting the danger of being discovered, and the impropriety of prolonging the interview, which might subject her to censure, summoned all her fortitude to utter a last farewell. "'Stay,' said Valancourt, "'I conjure you, stay, for I have much to tell you. The agitation of my mind has hitherto suffered me to speak only on the subject that occupied it. I have forborne to mention a doubt of much importance, partly, lest it should appear as if I told it with an ungenerous view of alarming you into a compliance with my late proposal.' Emily, much agitated, did not leave Valancourt, but she led him from the pavilion, and, as they walked upon the terrace, he proceeded as follows. "'Miss Montoni, I have heard some strange hints concerning him. Are you certain he is of Madame Connell's family, and that his fortune is what it appears to be?' "'I have no reason to doubt either,' replied Emily, in a voice of alarm. "'Of the first, indeed, I cannot doubt,' but I have no certain means of judging of the latter, and I entreat you will tell me all that you have heard. That I certainly will, but it is very imperfect and unsatisfactory information. I gathered it by accident from an Italian, who was speaking to another person of this Montoni. They were talking of his marriage. The Italian said that if he was the person he meant, he was not likely to make Madame Charon happy." He proceeded to speak of him in general terms of dislike, and then gave some particular hints concerning his character that excited my curiosity, and I ventured to ask him a few questions. He was reserved in his replies, but, after hesitating for some time, he owned that he had understood abroad that Montoni was a man of desperate fortune and character. He said something of a castle of Montoni's, situated among the Apennines, and of some strange circumstances that might be mentioned as to his former mode of life, 
I pressed him to inform me further, but I believe the strong interest I felt was visible in my manner and alarmed him, for no entreaties could prevail with him to give any explanation of the circumstances he had alluded to, or to mention anything further concerning Montoni. I observed to him that if Montoni was possessed of a castle in the Apennines, it appeared from such a circumstance that he was of some family, and also seemed to contradict the report that he was a man of entirely broken fortunes. He shook his head and looked as if he could have said a great deal, but made no reply. A hope of learning something more satisfactory or more positive detained me in his company a considerable time, and I renewed the subject repeatedly, but the Italian wrapped himself up in reserve, said that what he had mentioned he had caught only from a floating report, and that reports frequently arose from personal malice, and were very little to be depended upon. I forbore to press the subject farther, since it was obvious that he was alarmed for the consequence of what he had already said, and I was compelled to remain in uncertainty on a point where suspense is almost intolerable. Think, Emily, what I must suffer to see you depart for a foreign country, committed to the power of a man of such doubtful character as is this Montoni. But I will not alarm you unnecessarily. It is possible, as the Italian said at first, that this is not the Montoni he alluded to. Yet, Emily, consider well before you resolve to commit yourself to him. Oh, I must not trust myself to speak, or I shall renounce all the motives which so lately influenced me to resign the hope of your becoming mine immediately. Valancourt walked upon the terrace with hurried steps, while Emily remained leaning on the balustrade in deep thought. The information she had just received excited, perhaps, more alarm than it could justify, and raised once more the conflict of contrasted interests. She had never liked Montoni. The fire and keenness of his eye, its proud exultation, its bold fierceness, its sullen watchfulness, as occasion, and even slight occasion, had called forth the latent soul, she had often observed with emotion, while from the usual expression of his countenance she had always shrunk. From such observations she was the more inclined to believe that it was this Montoni of whom the Italian had uttered his suspicious hints. The thought of being solely in his power in a foreign land was terrifying to her, but it was not by terror alone that she was urged to an immediate marriage with Valancourt. The tenderest love had already pleaded his cause, but had been unable to overcome her opinion as to her duty, her disinterested considerations for Valancourt, and the delicacy which made her revolt from a clandestine union. It was not to be expected that a vague terror would be more powerful than the united influence of love and grief, but it recalled all their energy and rendered a second conquest necessary. With Valancourt, whose imagination was now awake to the suggestion of every passion, whose apprehensions for Emily had acquired strength by the mere mention of them, and became every instant more powerful as his mind brooded over them, with Valancourt no second conquest was attainable. He thought he saw in the clearest light, and love assisted the fear, that this journey to Italy would involve Emily in misery. He determined, therefore, to persevere in opposing it, and in conjuring her to bestow upon him the title of her lawful protector. Emily, said he with solemn earnestness, this is no time for scrupulous distinctions, for weighing the dubious and comparatively trifling circumstances that may affect our future comfort. I now see much more clearly than before 
the train of serious dangers you are going to encounter with a man of Montoni's character. Those dark hints of the Italian spoke much, but not more than the idea I have of Montoni's disposition, as exhibited even on his countenance. I think I see at this moment all that could have been hinted written there. He is the Italian whom I fear, and I conjure you for your own sake as well as for mine, to prevent the evils I shudder to foresee. Oh, Emily, let my tenderness, my arms, withhold you from them. Give me the right to defend you. Emily only sighed, while Valancourt proceeded to remonstrate and to entreat with all the energy that love and apprehension could inspire. But, as his imagination magnified to her the possible evils she was going to meet, the mists of her own fancy began to dissipate, and allowed her to distinguish the exaggerated images which imposed on his reason. She considered that there was no proof of Montoni being the person whom the stranger had meant, that, even if he was so, the Italian had noticed his character and broken fortunes merely from report, and that, though the countenance of Montoni seemed to give probability to a part of the rumor, it was not by such circumstances that an implicit belief of it could be justified. These considerations would probably not have arisen so distinctly in her mind at this time, had not the terrors of Valancourt presented to her such obvious exaggerations of her danger, as incited her to distrust the fallacies of passion. But, while she endeavored in the gentlest manner to convince him of his error, she plunged him into a new one. His voice and countenance changed to an expression of dark despair. Emily, said he, this, this moment, is the bitterest that has yet come to me. You do not, cannot love me. It would be impossible for you to reason thus coolly, thus deliberately, if you did. I, I am torn with anguish at the prospect of our separation, and of the evils that may await you in consequence of it. I would encounter any hazards to prevent it, to save you. No, Emily, no, you cannot love me. We have now little time to waste an exclamation or assertion, said Emily, endeavoring to conceal her emotion. If you are yet to learn how dear you are, and ever must be, to my heart, no assurances of mine can give you conviction. The last words faltered on her lips, and her tears flowed fast. These words and tears brought, once more, and with instantaneous force, conviction of her love to Valancourt. He could only exclaim, Emily, Emily! and weep over the hand he pressed to his lips. But she, after some moments, again roused herself from the indulgence of sorrow, and said, I must leave you. It is late, and my absence from the chateau may be discovered. Think of me, love me, when I am far away. The belief of this will be my comfort. Think of you, love you, exclaimed Valancourt. Try to moderate those transports, said Emily. For my sake, try. For your sake, Yes, for my sake, replied Emily, in a tremulous voice, I cannot leave you thus. Then do not leave me, said Valancourt with quickness. Why should we part, or part for longer than till tomorrow? I am, indeed I am, unequal to these moments, replied Emily. You tear my heart, but I never can consent to this hasty, imprudent proposal. If we could command our time, my Emily, it should not be thus hasty. We must submit to circumstances. We must indeed. I have already told you all my heart, my spirits are gone. You allowed the force of my objections, till your tenderness called up vague terrors, which have given us both unnecessary anguish. 
Spare me, do not oblige me to repeat the reasons I have already urged. Spare you, cried Valancourt. I am a wretch, a very wretch, that have felt only for myself. I, who ought to have shown the fortitude of a man, who ought to have supported you, I have increased your sufferings by the conduct of a child. Forgive me, Emily, think of the distraction of my mind now that I am about to part with all that is dear to me, and forgive me. When you are gone, I shall recollect with bitter remorse that I have made you suffer, and shall wish in vain that I could see you, if only for a moment, that I might soothe your grief. Tears again interrupted his voice, and Emily wept with him. I will show myself more worthy of your love, said Valancourt at length. I will not prolong these moments. My Emily, my own Emily, never forget me. God knows when we shall meet again. I resign you to his care. O oh God, O oh God, protect and bless her. He pressed her hand to his heart. Emily sunk almost lifeless on his bosom, and neither wept nor spoke. Valancourt, now commanding his own distress, tried to comfort and reassure her, but she appeared totally unaffected by what he said, and a sigh, which she uttered now and then, was all that proved she had not fainted. He supported her slowly towards the chateau, weeping and speaking to her, but she answered only in sighs, till, having reached the gate that terminated the avenue, she seemed to have recovered her consciousness, and, looking round, perceived how near they were to the chateau. "'We must part here,' said she, stopping. "'Why prolong these moments? Teach me the fortitude I have forgot.' Valancourt struggled to assume a composed air. "'Farewell, my love,' said he, in a voice of solemn tenderness. "'Trust me, we shall meet again, meet for each other, meet to part no more.' His voice faltered but recovering it, he proceeded in a firmer tone. You know not what I shall suffer till I hear from you. I shall omit no opportunity of conveying to you my letters, yet I tremble to think how few may occur. And trust me, love, for your dear sake, I will try to bear this absence with fortitude. Oh, how little I have shown to-night! Farewell, said Emily faintly. When you are gone, I shall think of many things I would have said to you. And I of many, many, said Valancourt. I never left you yet that I did not immediately remember some question or some entreaty or some circumstance concerning my love that I earnestly wished to mention and feel wretched because I could not. Oh, Emily, this countenance on which I now gaze will in a moment be gone from my eyes and not all the efforts of fancy will be able to recall it with exactness. Oh, what an infinite difference between this moment and the next! Now I am in your presence, can behold you. Then all will be dreary blank, and I shall be a wanderer, exiled from my only home. Valancourt again pressed her to his heart, and held her there in silence, weeping. Tears once again calmed her oppressed mind. They again bade each other farewell, lingered a moment, and then parted. Valancourt seemed to force himself from the spot. He passed hastily up the avenue, and Emily, as she moved slowly towards the chateau, heard his distant steps. She listened to the sounds as they sunk fainter and fainter, till the melancholy stillness of night alone remained, and then hurried to her chamber to seek repose, which, alas, was fled from her wretchedness. End of Volume 1, Chapter 13